All right, we are in Micah. After Jonah. Before Nahum in the Old Testament. All right, imagine with me for a moment two individuals, both of who claim to be Christians. Uh, one, the, the first we'll call religious legalist Linda. Linda. She is outwardly very devoted to the things of God, seems to take God very seriously and God's word. Uh, is committed to her church and to gathering with other believers, uh, reads her Bible diligently, prays, ties, is constantly talking about God and the Bible. Her thoughts are always going to God, and she's more than willing to go to great lengths to sacrifice and, and maintain God's favor. Though perhaps if she were honest, she would admit that she never feels like she's doing quite enough. She feels kind of an under underwriting sense of, of guilt, that there's more she should be doing. If we were able to peer into, like peel back the layers and peer into her heart and see her thoughts and her motivations, perhaps we would find that she, Linda, has a hard time believing God to be good. She believes that God is holy and, and just and authoritative and powerful and that he will one day judge the world, but good? She may claim to believe it, but in the deepest parts of her heart, she questions it. Because to her, God's love is not free and generous, uh, but must be bought, or at least must be maintained and kept up. And so she's constantly under this weight and pressure uh, to, to do this. The second individual we'll call Cheap Grace Gary. I hope I didn't actually name anybody in here. I don't think I did. Gary believes he is saved by grace and grace alone, that there's nothing he can do to secure his salvation, earn his salvation, keep up his salvation. God's love cannot be bought. It is free. But Gary also believes that God's grace essentially nullifies the authority and the importance of God's law and commands. He may not come right out and say it, he probably doesn't, but this is what his life reveals. Um, his life reveals that uh, the grace is not a means to grow in obedience and worship and devotion and love, that God's purposes in salvation are not necessarily to create a people who are joyfully devoted to him. All that really matters is that we get to heaven, right? So, and that's done by grace, and so... Where is there room for any of the rest of that stuff? Well, if we were able to peer into Gary's heart and mind and see his thoughts and motivations, we would, perhaps surprisingly, find out that he too doesn't fully believe God to be good. He believes God to be good in salvation, in, in saving us by grace at the great cost of Jesus, his son. But functionally, he sees a separation between the God who saves, and the God who commands. He tends to see the saving God as saving him from the commands of God. And so he's all about freedom, but he thinks that biblical freedom is freedom to live however he wants with no submission, obedience, and worship. 
Well, these are, of course, the ways that our hearts tend to view God and probably swinging back and forth for all of us. We see these tendencies, of course, out there in the world, in the church as well, but of course they arise from our own hearts. We think that God either requires my perfect obedience if he is to love me, or obedience doesn't really matter because we're saved by grace. It's just like this optional add-on, like, do you want mayo on your hamburger? Well, it doesn't really matter. It's just this thing for the real go-getters, the people that at Five Guys add everything to their burger. Not sure the analogy there, but go with it. But at the core, both of these expose a lack of belief that God is good through and through. Uh, there's a dis- that there's a disconnect between the things that God commands and the things that God accomplishes in salvation. And so the book of Micah helps us dig into this. Uh, the book of Micah is a little bit longer of a book, so we're not going to, um, there's a lot in there that we're not going to have time to get into. Uh, one of the other things about Micah is it's not necessarily a sequential book, kind of as Jonah was last week, where there's some more narrative and it kind of leads to a conclusion. Uh, Micah is kind of this cycle, this pattern of, uh, of God's, of, of prophecy, of God's judgment and salvation. It's a series of prophecies. So we're going to just hone in on one of these and a, just a particular section of one of these in chapter 6. Okay, but let me start with the very beginning just to get some context to this book and then we'll jump to chapter 6. So the first verse of Micah, 1-1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So um, the prophet Micah, we know, is from the the southern kingdom of Judah. If you'll remember that at this time, um, the people of Israel are separated into two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Uh, Micah is in Judah, and his message is mainly to Judah and its main city, Jerusalem. But he also, as you see here in the, the beginning, He's also going to speak a little bit to Israel in the north and its main city, Samaria. And Micah's ministry, we see here, occurred during the reigns of three kings, which tells us that it roughly parallels the ministry of Hosea and Isaiah, uh, sometime during 740 B.C. to 690 B.C. And the reigns of these three kings, we can read about in in the book of 2 Kings, uh, they give us some indication of what this time was like and the diversity of this period for the people of Judah. So the first one, Jotham, was a decent king. Uh, He mostly did, uh, you know, the phrase used uh, to describe these kings is he did what was right in the sight of the Lord or he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So Jotham, Jotham mostly did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. His son Ahaz uh, did not. He is perhaps the most wicked of Judah's kings. Uh, he adopted, uh, he basically redid the, the temple and the altar in Jerusalem uh, and remade it after the Assyrian pagan temple. And then he even went so far as to sacrifice his own son, uh, which was definitely something that God's people were not supposed to do. But it was something the other nations did. And so he was copying the pagan practices of the other nations. So Ahaz bad. Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, is the third one mentioned here. He reigns for 29 years, and he does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Um, 2 Kings 18 says, He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, 
so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. So just as an example, uh, in 722 uh, BC, so during this time, uh, Assyria will come and conquer and take into exile the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, and they'll begin to take, they'll begin to conquer Judah as well and take some of their cities and threaten them. Hezekiah prays to the Lord. He actually reaches out to Isaiah as well to pray to the Lord for them. God uh, listens and brings an angel to miraculously defeat the Assyrian army. And Judah is, at least for this time, protected. So this is a very up and down time for the people of Judah. And Micah's kind of uh, pattern of prophecies reveal that. But as we've seen time and time again, as we've gone through the prophets, there's more to the story than the waywardness and the fickleness and the faithfulness of God's people, right? That that's not the only factor to what is happening and to what will happen in the future. Um, in the book of Micah, as in all the prophets, there's great hope and there's great promises of, of joy and, and rest and blessing, and they ultimately don't rest on the, the people and their faithlessness, but on God and His faithfulness. Um, repeatedly, God says, I will. There are these promises of what God will do. God is leading forward. You know, God is sovereignly working over the events of history. Do you remember the promise He made to Abraham that He would bless Abraham's descendants and so that through him He could bless all people? So that, that story is still going on. God is fulfilling these promises. He's committed to to fulfilling these promises. So with that, let's turn to chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Uh, so one of the roles of the prophets is something like an attorney for God, bringing God's indictments against the wicked and godless and faithless. And at times, this is very clear, uh, they, they present a scene like a court, like a court scene, and that's kind of what you have here. Uh, God, through the prophet Micah, calls Israel to hear the charges against him, and he calls on the mountains and the hills and, and creation as witnesses to, within this court scene. So that's kind of the image that is here. The all of created order is witness to this relationship between God and his people, and here between God calling his people to, to account. And this is just... a. Uh, one of many reminders that we have that in the end, God is, we are not the end of, we are not the judge of God, but God is the judge of us. Uh, this is something that we in our modern age and all of us who live in this modern age tend to struggle with. We, we tend to want to put God in the dock and make him answer. God, why aren't you like this? Why did you do this? Why didn't you come and intervene when I wanted you? 
Why, why do you offend us? Why don't you match up to, to our sensibilities? Why do we deal with doubts? And there are certainly right ways to, to, to ask these questions of God. And the book of Psalm gives us amazingly just comforting ways to come to God and bring our requests, our complaints, our doubts, our questions to Him. Um, but the right way to do this is one of humility and faith. Is, is called lament. It's one where we ultimately trust God. And we're honest with our struggles, but we view them in light of His goodness and faithfulness and sovereignty. And we trust that He is above us. And so God has an indictment against His people. And it's important to note that the, the charges here are bringing, brought against God's people, the people of Israel. God had chosen Israel... Uh, in part, to be his witnesses on earth, right? Uh, to be a kingdom of priests, which meant that they were to represent God to the other nations, and they were to represent the other nations to God, in a sense, to reveal God's wisdom and, and faithfulness and goodness and presence to these other nations as God worked among them and as they responded to him. But there was a problem with this. God had worked graciously and powerfully among them, but they had not responded in faithfulness. They had rejected God's rule repeatedly and failed to be his witnesses. And that's the thrust of the next few verses here. So starting at verse four, or three, sorry. Oh, my people. Now, just in that, do you hear the longing affection of God? Even as he's about to bring a charge against them. Oh, my people. But still, there is love, there is longing, there is affection in those words. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? Like, what wrong have I done? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people. Remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So what is God doing here? Well, he's reminding Israel of his goodness and grace towards them again and again. The indictment being brought here is not, as we might suppose, simply you've sinned, you've, you haven't obeyed me, you've, you've done wrong. No, the, the thrust of this indictment is that God's grace and goodness towards them has, has had little to no effect. That God has go done great and wonderful things for them and that they have not responded um, in appropriate ways and have continued to go their own way. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Uh, these are rhetorical questions. The implication that God has a consistent track record of acting good and graciously on their behalf. He's not, he's not acted to weary them or make them tired or make them begrudging towards them. 
Perhaps if he had revealed himself to be capricious and mean-hearted, unkind, ungracious, exacting in his punishments, perhaps their faithfulness would have some basis. Faithlessness would have some basis. But as it is, they have no such excuse. And then Micah, uh, God through Micah, lists several specific examples of the ways that he's been good. So he lists the, the Exodus. God had mightily uh, rescued the Israelites out of Egypt, out of their slavery in Egypt, defeated their enemies, brought them miraculously across the Red Sea. He had met with them at Mount Sinai and revealed his, his glory and his ways and his will to them, called them his people, said, I will be your God. He had supplied leaders for them. Micah lists Moses and then, then his two siblings, Aaron, the, the first priest, and Miriam, Moses' sister, who was a prophetess. Through these leaders and others, God had led his people, God has revealed his ways to his people, God has, had provided a way for sin to be atoned for. And then Micah lists two events that perhaps are a bit more obscure, obscure but are equally important for the point being made here. So Balak was a, the pagan king of Moab, and Moab is the land that the Israelites passed through just before they were going into the promised land. So uh, coming out of the 40 years in, in the desert. And Balak, the king of Moab, feared Israel. Um, perhaps he had heard of, of what had, God had done for them, and he feared them. And so he went out and sought out this pagan prophet, pa pa pagan seer, and said, will you bring a curse on these people, Israel? To, in order to protect us. And God didn't allow this pagan prophet to bring a curse on Israel. He actually three times had him pronounce a blessing to Balak, the king of Moab, on Israel. And the king of Moab is offering to pay him handsomely for bringing a curse, and instead he, he can do nothing but bless Israel. This is meant to show, and, and what Micah is doing here is showing that even in this situation, God is working on behalf of and for the favor and protection of his people. And then the final event that he lists, he says, remember what happened from Shittim, Shittim till Gilgal. So these are two cities uh, immediately on the side of the Jordan River, which the Israelites had to cross to get into the promised land. Uh, so they are camped on the east in Shittim just before they're to cross over into the promised land. And while there, they begin to worship the pagan gods of the people of the land. They, they quickly forget all, forgot all that God had done for them, and they, they give themselves to idols. And while God will bring judgment on those who sinned in this way, he ultimately doesn't give up on his people. He, he ultimately brings the people into the promised land, uh, immediately when the other, on the other side in Gilgal, he reaffirms his commitment to them. And he reaffirms the covenant. God was not going to give up on his people, on his promises, or on his purposes. And so what's the point of all this? What is God, through Micah, saying here? Well, Micah says it plainly. I, I love it when the Bible gives us a purpose statement. We don't have to ask what the reason for this is. It just says it. That you may know the righteous acts of of the Lord. In other words, God has acted righteously, rightly towards you. Which, if you think about it with what has just been laid out, doesn't mean with cold calculating justice, as we might assume. 
Rather, God has acted rightly in that he has committed to his people in steadfast love and mercy. Uh, the, the word righteous, uh, righteous here um, has in mind a law court, again, court scene, and is meant to show that a party is in the right, that there's no fault or failure with a party, that he cannot be blamed for anything. There is no fault or failure on God's part. He has shown himself to be eminently good, full of steadfast love, ready to forgive. And it's in light of this that their faithlessness is such an injustice, is so inexcusable, is cause for this court scene before the hills and the mountains and all of creation. So consider this for a moment. God has given abundant and consistent evidence that he is good and gracious that he is a protector of his people, that he's trustworthy, that there's blessing and life in following after him. And all of this is meant to compel his people, is meant to compel us to turn to God, to find his favor and to live joyfully in his presence. And yet despite this, the people consistently turn away from God. And as we'll See, they do this in ways that are very much with us today. Um, there, there are ways to, to turn from God where we just blatantly, outrightly just reject Him. We just don't believe in Him and just run the other way for everyone to see. But there are also many ways to turn from God where it actually looks like we're still following God. And we tell ourselves we're still following God. And it may look good on the outside, but... In reality, our hearts are far from him. Verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. So Micah poses a question, how are we to come before the Lord? What does the Lord require of us? And then before he gets into the actual answer, he gives an answer that many thought was correct and that many today still think is correct. And the thing to notice about this list is that it's, um, it's a list of sacrifices of seemingly increasingly val- increasing value. Uh, It's a list of sacrifices that require increasing loss. So he begins burnt offerings. Then a year-old calf. So to give a year-old calf uh, requires that you take care of that calf for a year. Then then he says thousands of rams. Then 10,000 rivers of oil. And finally, my firstborn. What are we to give to God? How can, we, how can we come to him rightly? Well, the thinking is that one could do these extremely sacrificial acts of piety and devotion, and God would be pleased or appeased, as if God was merely concerned that we express our devotion in, in religious and in ritual ways. 
Of course, this tendency is, is still with us, right? We think that we can offer God sacrifice and devotion and seriousness in one part of our life, life uh, be really religious, but then refuse to offer Him the rest of our lives, our hearts and affections and love. That we can, in this way, purchase off God's favor, God's protection, and God's blessing, and then kind of get on with our lives. But this is not what God desires, because this is not who God is. God is not looking to merely be appeased, to kind of be paid off. God is not looking for a merely transactional relationship with us, a business relationship with us, where we just kind of offer him something to kind of get him off the, our backs and then we can get on with the rest of our lives. Again, going back to Linda and Gary, this thinking reveals a, a doubt, a disbelief in God's goodness, that God's goodness must be bought. And that as soon as that, if we can just figure out how to make that payment, that we can get on with our lives uh, because ultimately, we know better how to live our lives. We know the path to blessing and goodness better than God does. So, sure, there is some goodness in God. There is some grace in God. But ultimately, we know better. So, what is God looking for, if not this? Well, my last verse we'll look at, well-known, probably the most well-known verse of the book of Micah, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So let's kind of walk through this. He has told you, O man, so first off, God has not left us in the dark as to what he requires. Um, And there is a grace, even in this, that God is drawing us to himself. He's telling us. Come to me like this. Then he says, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? So notice that these are one and the, one and the same thing, that what God is requiring of us is also what is good, that his way is the best way. It is good for us, for others, for God, for the world. And what is this good and right way to live before God well, the three phrases lifted here, listed here, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. Uh, if you know your Bibles, they're essentially nothing new. They're essentially a summary statement of what the Bible says in many ways, in many different places about what it is to live before God. It's, it's an all-life-encompassing, head, heart, and hands, love of God and love of man. It's not just this compartmentalized thing like this religious thing. It's, it's all of life. It's vertically acknowledging and living rightly before God, and then horizontally having that flow out into how we treat others. So do justice. This means to treat others fairly, to do right what is right for others, not take advantage of them, not overlook their needs, paying a special attention to those to to the poor and the needy and the the suffering, those who tend to be overlooked in society. And I think it's important to notice that he says, do justice. Um, Perhaps this has always been the case, but especially today, it's very easy to do, to 
be all about justice except actually doing anything about it. It's very easy to talk a lot about justice, um, to call others to be about justice, to be an armchair justice warrior, to protest and march for justice, which may have their place, but ultimately, are we doing justice? And doing justice starts in the very relationships that God has called us into. Um, we tend to just jump to kind of the, the national, global scale of justice. And, but justice starts in, in our homes, in the way we treat our spouses and, and kids, in our friendships and relationships, in our church, in the people that God has called us into community with here and in our community. And then this requires us to keep in mind the second phrase, love kindness. Um, so we talked about the Hebrew word uh, hesed a little bit last week. It's a very important word in the Old Testament. Uh, here it's translated kindness. It can also be translated mercy or steadfast love. And to love kindness means to, to be in committed relationships with others. And specifically, committed relationships that require forgiveness and grace and long-suffering and patience and not just hitting eject as soon as things get hard or as soon as you get offended or as soon as you don't agree. Because this is, a, this is the hesed that God has given us. This is the way He lives in relationship with us. And so if you put these two together, do justice, love kindness, um, you see that biblical justice is not simply cold and calculating justice. It's, it's not simply just making sure people get what they deserve. As we saw last week, um, merely outrage in the face of evil and evil people uh, is, is not what we're called to, to, to show. There's a place for anger and even hatred of sin, but just merely being outraged with no concern for mercy and kindness is not how God calls us to live, because that's not who God Himself is. And then both of these terms, do justice and love kindness, imply that we are living out our faith within a community, right? These are relational terms. Um, they imply that faithfulness to God is not just about inner piety and devotion, not just about quote-unquote religion, but it must compel us to commit ourselves to others and then pursue justice and kindness towards them. And then the third phrase, walk humbly with God. Uh, this this f term humbly could also be translated carefully. Uh, the idea is that we are living rightly, diligently, appropriately before God. And so perhaps we would read the first two commands here about justice and kindness and think that all that matters is how we treat other people. All that matters is the horizontal realm. If we can just not hurt or harm others, then God can be pleased and appeased and, and we're good. Well, it certainly matters how we treat others, but all of this here has a vertical element. All of our doing justice and loving kindness is, is done out of obedience to God. It's, it's God's justice, it's God's kindness, and as we are doing this, we are displaying, as the Israelites were, were meant to, God's kindness and, and justice and wisdom and presence. 
Now, it's important to note that this call, the audience here, it's important to note that this call for right living is being given to God's people and to remember that God had already graciously rescued them, graciously revealed Himself to them, graciously done many mighty works for and with them. As such, none of this is a call to save themselves or to become God's people by their works. Did this shut off? Oh, there you go. Rather, this is a call to live appropriately as his people in response to his goodness and grace. Remember, the thrust of God's indictment against Israel here is not just simply that they're rejecting him, going their own way, treating others unkind and unjustly. It's not just that they are sinning, it's that they are failing to respond to his grace. God has done all of these things for them, and they've rejected and continue to reject and ignore, and they've been unmoved by God's overwhelming goodness. Um, one commentator, Walter Kaiser, says, Thus, this, is not a, this saying is not an invitation in lieu of the gospel, to save oneself by kindly acts of equity and fairness. It was instead a call for the natural consequence of truly forgiven men and women to demonstrate the reality of their faith by living it out in the marketplace. Such living would be accompanied with acts and deeds of mercy, justice, and giving of oneself for the orphan, the widow, and the poor. And, and the same thing goes for us today, reading this from our vantage point post-Christ. As we're reading these commands, none of this is an alternate way to attain God's favor and, and get into God's people devoid of grace. No, this is the kind of people that God creates by His grace. This is who we, who have been saved by grace, who have been dwelt and empowered by God's Spirit, are called to be. And actually, from our vantage point, post-Christ, post the cross, in greatness of the grace displayed at the cross, uh, this puts an even greater expectation and constraint on us if we fail to respond to such a great salvation. Um, Paul writes that, uh, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance and that Christ's love compels you. Uh, we sang earlier in um, the wonderful cross, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If the cross is the greatest display, is, is meant to display God's goodness and grace, greater than anything else, how much greater both the burden and the constraint, but also the motivation for us to respond appropriately, uh, to turn to God, not just for salvation, but to turn to God and live for God in everything. Right? This is why we aim to be gospel-centered in everything we do. We keep our eyes and keep coming back to the good news of God's grace in Jesus. Uh, because God isn't merely interested in showing us his 
power and authority and holiness and justice and just creating a people who are just fearfully yet begrudgingly obedient? No. God wants us to see and to continue to see his goodness through and through in his salvation, yes, but also in what he commands. So then we might give ourselves wholeheartedly to him. Remember the flow of, of Micah 6 here, how God, like, what wrong have I done to you? Remember all of this stuff. Remember who you are, what I've, how I've called you, how I've acted among you. And now live appropriately in light of that. And for us, we, we, this, this call is not something we are to do in our own strength. Um, God has not only acted powerfully and graciously um, externally to us as we believe in the gospel, we are actually changed internally. God gives us his spirit. Um, this is often, this is a often neglected truth in our day, this truth of regeneration, that when you trust in Christ, when, when God calls you and and you trust in Christ and repent of your sin, there is an actual, real, miraculous change that happens. The Bible calls it regeneration or being born again, um, and God begins to change your desires and affections, your loves and your behavior. You increasingly want to please Him and, and hate your sin. You, you're not comfortable just continuing to live in your sin. You, you fight against it rather than just living with it comfortably. And you take seriously commands like do justice and love kindness and walk humbly and carefully before your God. Uh, not like Linda, just trying to keep up God's love and favor and blessing, but because and in light of, because you continually come back and see and remember all that God has done for you because he's purchased you, he's purchased you, the free gift on your part is the gift is free. And he has paid a great price for you through his own suffering and death. Because of all the vast witness of the righteous acts of the Lord. There is no fault or failure on God's part, which means that God has, which means that on, on the last day when we stand before God, there is, there is, and, and if we have continued to reject him and go our own way, there is nothing that we can say, well, God, you have not shown me, you have not been good. There is no charge that we will be able to bring against God. He has given us and continues to give us abundant and sufficient evidence of his goodness. And we are called to continue to peer into this and respond appropriately. Let's pray.